Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 4th, April the 4th. Jeez, I just skipped a month there. April the 4th, 2017. And this is episode 1976 of the Survival Podcast. If uh, you saw the title of today's episode in your feed or on the site before you downloaded or started playing it, You'll see the title is Why I Switched to Aquaponics. And I, I think maybe I'm using a little bit of clickbait there, just a little bit. I don't do many marketing tricks like that. But today's show is really more about why I've taken up aquaponics. I really didn't switch to it other than, you know, I, I kind of gave up annual gardening uh, in this, uh, this hellhole that I live in. It's really just a tough environment to do annual gardening in. And I uh, did a little bit here and there, but man, really, uh, aquaponics has renewed my interest in annuals, uh, as I've been focusing on for the last four years since we got here, livestock and perennials. And uh, so I kind of did switch, but it's more like I, I have, I've just decided that aquaponics is for me. Because up until, like, say, last, late last year, when I met my buddy David Siegler, um, this is how I felt about aquaponics. That's a fine thing for you to do. It just wasn't my thing, and you know, I learned about it from a different vantage point, and I learned about things like wicking beds, and that, that really changed my tune, because I wasn't all about sitting around making ebb and flow beds all day and growing lettuce on a raft, but now I've, I've come to love those things too, and I'm going to talk to you today about aquaponics, uh, how I'm doing it, I'm going to tell you how to, how to build your own systems with off-the-shelf parts. IBCs are fine. I'll talk a little bit about them toward the end of today's show. But I'm going to talk about things that if there's a tractor supply and a Lowe's near you, um, you can get everything you need there and, and, and have a system built in a day and up and running. And I'll talk a little bit about fish and all, but I'm going to talk more about the system itself today. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to 10 of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Liberty Fox Defense. They provide concealed carry classes in Utah and offer custom pistol holsters for sale on their site. Go to libertyfoxdefense.com to learn more or check them out in the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1976 because the episode's 1976. From Alex Shrug today we have, The Ebola Virus is Discovered and USA, 200 Years in the Making. And from Southpaw Ben we have, Global warming. Didn't we just have global cooling? Yeah. Anyway, we also have some bullet points today. Notable births, Pat Tillman, 
Age uh, died in 2014, age 27, in combat. He gave up football after 9-11 to join the Army Rangers. He was killed in a friendly fire incident in Afghanistan. Since he was famous, the Army first claimed that he was killed by enemy fire. In other words, the government lied. Peyton Manning, football quarterback for the Colts and the Broncos. Uh, and the guy that finally did it. I can't tell you how long I was waiting for a world-class quarterback. I didn't love Peyton Manning, but I sure as hell respected him. To be thrown away by his team... Finish out his career on a team that picked him up and win a frickin' Super Bowl. Hoorah to Peyton Manning for that. Stevie Kill Creek Case, the first female video game celebrity and businesswoman. Rachel McFarlane born this year in movies. Uh, Benedict Cumberpatch from Doctor Strange. Fred Savage, The Wonder Years. Alicia Silverstone and Reese Witherspoon. Fred Savage, I'm actually watching the entire series right now. Uh, for to kind of turn your mind off at night of The Wonder Years, which is really a great show. Uh, at least I think it is. This year in film, Rocky, All the President's Men, Silver Streak, The Bad News Bears, and Silent Movie. Some disturbing films this year, Logan's Run, Carrie and Sybil. This year in TV and comedy, The Muppet Show, Laverne and Shirley and Alice. You know, I watched all this stuff. I, babes on screen begin this year with Charlie's Angels and uh, The Bionic Woman. In game shows, Family Feud and The Gong Show are released. And VH videotape machines are introduced, and the lawsuits over stealing video content now begin. This is why those of us, when we saw things like Napster and LimeWire and all come around, and the, the music industry was like, oh my god, it's the end of the world. We were like, yeah, you guys have said that about every freaking way there's been to copy me. Shut up and go away. Um, this year in music, ABBA dominates with Dancing Queen, Fernando, and Mamma Mia. They have Don't Go Breaking My Heart from Elton John and Kiki D. And if you leave me now, Chicago. This year in video games, Sega releases Heavyweight Champion, first hand-to-hand -hand combat fighting game. Atari releases Breakout, originally written by Apple Computers, Steve Jobs, and Steve Wozniak. And Exidy's Death Race is banned. Based on the movie Death Race 2000, it's little white dots on the screen that you run over. It's pixel people. They have no idea what's coming. In other news, Karen Ann Quinlan is ruled a vegetable. Her ventilator is removed. She will live another nine years. Alex Shrug says the first step in killing someone is to change their name from a person to an it. The rain on Entab, Israeli commandos fly into Uganda and rescue 103 hostages held by Palestinian hijackers. Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, Jonathan, that is Jonathan, is the only commando killed during the raid. That was a world-changing thing. That was Israel saying to terrorists, don't F with us. And I think the terrorists had no idea that it was even possible. It's, there's some amazing documentaries on that. They're worth watching. And Mal dies of a heart attack. Hoorah! Mal's murderous wife is arrested for treason. Her defense, she said, was, I was Chairman Mal's dog. I bit whomever he asked me to bite. Accurate, if not becoming. And there's a face on Mars! Well, not really, but the shadowing of Mars Viking photograph looks like a face, and conspiracy theories will dominate for a long time. I'm going to read USA 200 Years in the Making because it is a really, it's really a well-written piece by Alex. It is the bicentennial celebration of the Declaration of Independence, the founding document of the Republic. We have done so much since that time. We have fought a war to free the slaves, brought forth the Second Industrial Age, fought a world war twice, and nearly destroyed everything. We came from the horse and buggy to walking on the moon. We have cured deadly diseases that once baffled our great-grandfathers. Millions have lived because of our virtues, and millions have died because of our faults. While traditional religious faith has been an anchor for most, some have made science their new religions. Others speak, seek spiritual oneness through sex and drugs and careless abandon. 
Cynicism is the rule of the day. Our heroes have fallen, at least mine have. It will take time to find new ones, and yet, not all that long. Just when I thought all was lost, I met a man who would save my life. The very next year, it is always darkest before the dawn. As we enter the electronic age, our children will take for granted what we can only imagine. I wonder what they will imagine in turn. It's a whole new world. Indeed. I wanted to put some things in perspective for you. In 1976, Jack Spierko was four years old. And other than some flashing memories here and there, I don't really remember the year. I certainly don't remember our bicentennial celebration. And if, like me, you were very young at this one, or not quite born, but born soon after, you're in one of those places where you'll probably never see a centennial celebration of your country. If I were to live long enough to live to 2076, I would be 104 years old. It's possible, but I sure as hell am not planning on it, and I, I don't know. I don't know that I want to live to be 104 unless such major advances are made that I can really be happy at 104. But for those of you that would like to, to have kind of that kind of look back and have like that significant anniversary of your nation, those of you that are Americans anyway, we will have our half-centennial anniversary, and most of us will be here. I'll be 53 when it happens, which will be the year 2026. 2026. I'll be 53 when it starts and 54 when it ends. So unless something catastrophic happens, I'll be here to see it. So just kind of let it sink in that there's, there's a lot of history in this country. We're a relatively new nation, as, as many nations go in the world, but... A lot has transpired, uh, even since 1976. A lot has changed. And as I keep saying, I want to kind of keep your eyes looking forward rather than backwards. And our ending song today will actually help us do that. Because as dramatic as the world will have changed between 1976 and 2076, the changes from 20, 2026 to um, 2076 will make them look unbelievably small in comparison. What's coming over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years will be a radical transformation like nothing mankind has ever known. And you know, you can say that about the last 50 years. They were as well. But it becomes exponentially more uh, impactful. The, 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 let's say we just divide it into even numbers to make it simple. What happened in the world between 1900 and 1950 Unbelievable. But compare what happened between 1950 and 2000. And if you even look at that and then say, well, what's happened since 2000 to, let's say, in the next three years we'll add in and say 2020, it, it, it is an exponential curve of growth. And that can be good or bad. Because what Alex said in here that hit me the most, that made me want to read, read this piece, millions have lived because of what we had done. And millions have died because of our faults. The more good you're capable of, the more bad you're capable of. The more power you have, the more its use, abuse, or apathetic unuse can result in death and misery to others. It's a responsibility. That's the old quote from Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. There's never been a time in history where not you, us, the United States, but people as a whole have had as much power as they do today. And unfortunately, there have been times where I think, as a general population, we've been more responsible. We need to think about that as we move forward. 
Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. Okay, and with just a real quick uh, update be, uh, before we get into the, today's topic, um, yesterday I floated an idea that we would come up with a, like a new way of doing TSP-branded merchandise, shirts, hats, bumper stickers, whatever people can come up with. And um, I floated the idea of basically to participate in this program, you would have to advertise as a bronze uh, vendor or above in the TSP business directory, And, uh, you, you know, we'd make a category just for that. So it'd be like its own little marketplace for people that make TSP branded gear. And that would be your license fee. And you could make as much or as little as you wanted after that. Uh, and it's really affordable to be a bronze or, or higher member in the directory. And it would be a great central place for me to re redirect all the traffic that used to go to the, the main gear shop since that's not coming back. I said if there was sufficient interest, we would do it. I had like six people really excited about it in one day. And the show didn't go out till late yesterday due to a technical glitch. And thanks to my buddy David, who you'll hear about in this show, because he's been so influential on my uh, on my aquaponics. But he texted me like five o'clock. Goes, do you know the show's not live? I'm like, ah, shit. Um, so even with the show going out late yesterday, lots of people excited and interested with lots of ideas. It'll take me a while to put together the basic guidelines for the program so that people are doing it in a way that's consistent with the the, the brand. And I'll talk to Blake and get the uh, the directory category set up, and from there we'll just uh, we'll just rock on with it. And I I can't wait to see what the market comes up with uh, using all of the uh, concepts and ideas and imagery that we've created with TSP over the last eight and a half years. All right, so with that, let's get into the uh, main topic, which of course is aquaponics. And again, I want to start out with. I didn't really switch to aquaponics. I added aquaponics, but I've also dropped annual gardening to almost completely dropped it over the last couple of years. This has brought me back around to it. I'm really excited about the, where, where things are going. Now, a lot of you guys have been long-term listeners. A lot of you guys, even if you're new, you know what aquaponics is. Um, but there are new people coming to the show every day that just aren't sure what we're talking about. So I'll do a very brief, down and dirty, you know, what is aquaponics? Aquaponics is simply where we use water in our system. And in that water, fish, shellfish, some type of aquatic creature lives in that water. It eats, it poops and pees, and that lends itself to the nitrate-nitrite cycle. And I won't get into the chemistry of it, but those things break down. And good bugs in our system, good bacteria that are living in the media in our system, and in the water itself, and in other places actually convert that to nitrogen and other things the plants can use. And the plants take that up. So the plants keep the water clean enough for the fish to live, and the fish provide the nutrient to the plants so the plants can grow. It's not exactly that clean. There are times when you have to add certain amendments and stuff like that, but that's pretty much it. So if you think of hydroponics and adding a fish tank, 
That's pretty much what aquaponics is. Let's talk about the three. There's other stuff. There's Dutch buckets and strawberry towers and all kinds of stuff. But I've looked at enough systems to tell you that the majority of what's grown in aquaponics is grown in one of three main types of growing beds. There's what's called ebb and flow, also known as flood and drain. There's deep water beds, also called deep water raft beds. And there's wicking beds. Those are your three main types. Let's talk about each one and what they're really good at. Let's start out with wicking beds. What wicking beds are good at is growing anything that you'd really want to grow in soil. Because you're growing in soil. So you can really grow anything. Now, there's certain things that don't make a lot of sense to grow in a wicking bed. I don't know that I would grow wheat in a wicking bed. I don't know that I would grow corn, though, with the right you know, structuring and, and all, you could... You know, on the back side of your beds, grow some dwarf corn in a wicking bed. It would be just fine. It would actually take up very little space, as long as it was to the, you know, use the solar aspect to the lighting so it's not shading other things. And we could throw some beans on it. But, you know, any kind of root vegetables. Um, tomatoes and peppers I have in mind are doing fantastic squash. You name it. And vining crops are great because we can plant them at the edge of a wicking bed and we can train them out of a wicking bed into other spaces and leave the majority of the surface area open to other plants. And the beautiful thing about a wicking bed and aquaponics system is we can use fertilizers in that bed, organic fertilizers, that we normally would not, specifically solid organic fertilizers. Um, so my Dr. Earth is a product I recommend that's a 444 uh, fertilizer, really great stuff. We can use mycorrhizal fungi inoculation on our roots when we plant into them. Um, and, and we can have all of that biology going on. They're a great habitat for worms and earth, so not just compost worms, but earthworms as well. And we can grow microgreens in them. And my favorite microgreen to grow in mine is just black oil sunflower microgreens, sunflower sprouts. And you can, one little piece of a, of a wicking bed, and you leave two, you know, two areas so that you can rotationally grow them. Because once they get too big, you don't want to, you don't want to pick them anymore. You soak your seeds overnight, and you get them in there, and you know, in a week you're harvesting. And we can do all of that with wicking beds and more. And that's part of why I like them. What is a wicking bed? A wicking bed is simply we have a relatively deep container. We have rocks, old pieces of pipe, whatever in the bottom. Then we have a stand-up that sets the water level. So the water comes in. It fills up to a certain level, and it overflows. And that overflow point is a constant. There's a lot of ways to do it, but the easiest way is to put a T on your pipe, a T fitting, put two branches on it, drill a whole shitload of holes in it. We then make sure that pipe is actually covered in the rocks, and we put some sort of barrier between the rocks and the soil. We make a good, fluffy soil mix, we put it on top. For a barrier, there's a lot of different options. You can use landscaping fabric, I use perlite because if you if you don't buy little bitty bags, if you go to a garden center, uh, like I go to a place called Russell Feeds where they sell stuff in bulk, and you buy a big ass bag of perlite, it's like twenty bucks for a huge bag. It'll do a lot of beds. You do about an inch layer of that, two inches at the most, and then you put your soil mix on top, and then you put a thick mulch on top of that, and it's a good idea then to water it really really heavily to prime it. And then it just sits there and wicks. And your water comes in, overflows in, over, it just keeps going. And that layer of rocks down there is a biological filter, and you never have to water it. Sometimes when you're planting new plants or seeds to really soak down the top, it's worth watering it to prime it again. But in general, once you have roots down in a wicking bed, you are good unless something messes up. 
And that's why I, they are the main thing. Even though they're not the main type of event I'm going to talk about today, because I think the ebb and flow or flood drain has a huge important place in aquaponics, especially systems the size of which we're going to talk about you building today. That you can build anywhere from a couple hundred to about five to six hundred dollars with off-the-shelf parts. I'm going to tell you where to get everything. Okay. The next bet I want to talk about, though, before I go to the ebb and flow, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, because it's the one that takes the most most effort to learn. All right is a deep water raft bed. Um, the deep water raft bed is simply we have some sort of a container, just like our wicking bed, except our height of the water is going to be set a lot higher, like up near the top, maybe leaving ourselves two to four inches of freeboard above the top. We have some sort of strainer to keep the water, you know, keep gunk from going down in the pipe. And we have a raft of some sort. We build them in 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks that you get for 80 bucks at Tractor Supply. Every day you can buy them for that much. That's the highest retail price I've ever seen on my tractor supply. I'm going to highest numbers today. We use uh, foam board insulation like you buy to, to insulate a wall with. Cut it with a razor knife. Stick it in there. You take a hole saw and cut whatever size net pot you're going to use out with a hole saw. You drop your net pots in and put your plants in. There's two really great things about deep water beds. One is they are fantastic for all of your greens, your spinaches, your lettuces. Uh, watercress does really good. Anything that's like a leafy plant does really good. That's about it. Even if you can grow something else, you'd be better off growing it in ebb and flow or a wicking bed. Okay? You just would. But for leaf, greens, lettuces, you know, stuff like that, it is the, the, the preferred technology. It's why a lot of the commercial operations do mostly deep water beds. Because their fast turnaround product are lettuces. They can sell that to restaurants that make salads, you know, butter crisp, romaine, etc. They can have a ton of little plants ready to drop in right behind the next session, and they can get a steady production. For home use, I think one is a fine idea. And one will probably, if it's about the size of a 100-gallon rubber-made tank, it will probably grow you more leafy greens than you and your family want to eat. Two would, you know be fine for a family of four to six to eight, depending on how much salad you eat. Because we can still grow leafy greens and other things too. Okay? Okay, now, ebb and flow. What ebb and flow, no, I said there's two things about deep water beds. Deep water beds can be things where you can grow more fish within them. Um, even if those are feeder fish, like let's say minnows or goldfish, we just want to make sure if we're doing a true deep water raft that we're not growing a fish in there, it's going to eat the roots of our plants. But I've got goldfish and tilapia in a bed right now with lettuce. And since they're well-fed, they they're not hurting it at all. It's, it's all doing really, really well. And I haven't seen them really messing it up. And you would think goldfish and tilapia would be... I didn't think it would work. I thought the hell with it. I'll just throw it. It's like a half-raft bed. Um, but you can have other fish growing in there, including if you're doing other things, you can have, let's say, a breeding population of minnows in there. And that can either be food for carnivorous fish or it can be bait. Right, Or it could be something like you could do guppies and have a breeding program going on, breeding ornamental guppies. You could be breeding mosquito fish, which you might be able to sell it to your local uh, economy. You can, I'm, I still haven't built one yet. I keep threatening to do it. You can build what I call a prawn apartment, which is a bunch of pipes stacked like cordwood and held together. And you put freshwater prawn in there, and since they all have a place to go, they're less likely to kill each other. And you can put feeder prawns in there and grow great big shrimp. Not a ton every year, but a nice little extra thing. Anyway, they have more fish space is what they are, or more aquatic creature space. Now, moving on to ebb and flow. 
ebb and flow will grow just about anything. I've seen things grown in ebb and flow beds by this guy Rob Bob from Rob Bob's Backyard Farming in Australia that I never thought you would grow in an ebb and flow bed. I saw this guy grow ginger in an ebb and flow bed. I was like, that has to be ridiculous. He got a huge harvest out of it. I've seen him do water chestnuts in ebb and flow. While wicking worked better for that, or constant flow did, it worked. It worked. Um, I've thrown eggplant. I've thrown um, tomatoes in them. They do just fine. Uh, some things have been in others. Watercress does really well in them. But they'll grow most things that you would want to grow. They'll grow your lettuces and stuff. Though I've experimented with direct seeding and very small lettuce plants being put into them. They don't do that great. It's better to have a well-started small plant and drop that in. It seems to do a lot better. But the other thing that ebb and flow does, or again, flood and drain, and this is where we have a bed. It's full of some type of media. And everything I'm going to talk today, except a little bit at the end, is going to be plain old lava rock. It's a great medium. It's a little bit rough on your hands, a little harder to plant into than the expanded uh, clay pebbles. But it's cheap, it's available, and it works damn good. And it drains beautifully. But no matter what media we use in our ebb and flow, in addition to all the things it can do for us, and some cool things I'll tell you about toward the end of the show that most people don't think about, is it acts as a filter. Because the water comes up slowly and flushes out through the rocks. And up slowly and flushes out through the rocks. So you're getting a biological filtration through your media in two directions, up slowly and down rapidly, up slowly and down rapidly. And in a small system... You can talk about solid separators, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about being more advanced in a bit with larger systems, but in smaller systems, four or five beds in a stock tank, okay? If you do a good job of maintaining the balance in your system, it's all the filtration that you need. It'll, it, you, know, so you use hardy fish, and maybe once in a while use something like the python vacuum if you do get some accumulation on the bottom of your fish tank uh, to, to take out that extra sludge, and you're good. Use some good plants that are good at taking up excess nutrient. They act almost as a solid filter. I'll talk a little bit about one way to use duckweed with that without having your fish eat it and integrating that into your system in, in, in a little bit as well. But the, that, that flood and drain action is, is so beneficial to the health of the entire system. And it is the more complicated out of the three to build. The other two only seem complicated until you look at how they're built and you go, oh, it's that simple. Yeah, okay. But we need a bell siphon to work with our ebb and flow beds. And we'll talk a little bit about the basics of a bell siphon later. But the reality is there's a hundred ways to do it, and they all work. And I've got videos. I've got a whole playlist of videos of aquaponics and aquatics. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'll have a link in the show notes today where you can, I think i got like 15 videos in there. And it shows how I build bell siphons, and we build them several different ways. But the ones, when I want to do them quick, down, and dirty, how I do them, they're pretty simple, and they work. Um, I want to talk about some additional components as well that you'll need in an aquaponics system before we get into tanks and setups and whatever. So number one, I'll talk about choosing a pump. And I think a pump is where you should make a, a, a significant investment in your system because the pump is the mechanical moving part that can break. Everything else in your system can't break. All it can do is clog up, and that means that you can fix it. Right, Things can go wrong. I've seen things go wrong. Um, I've had things go wrong, but there's not a finance. It's a time expense to repair them and to learn from it and try to design it so it doesn't happen again. But we don't have to go buy a new one. If a stand-up clogs, we take it off and we unclog it and we put it back on, and the water starts flowing again. But if a pump breaks, we have to replace the pump. So good long lifetime pump. Pumps also are number one consumer of energy. 
It's the only thing in these systems that actually requires an electronic input. Okay? And it, it's a thing that if it breaks, the health of our system immediately begins to decay. It is the heart of the system. And if the system is the patient, this is our cardiac heart, right? This is our doing our thing. So I recommend that you seriously consider buying two pumps. And we used to have a pump that we recommended from Harbor Freight. You could get it in three-quarter or one horse, and it was a dirty water pump. It wasn't really designed for aquaponics, but it was a great hack. It was lifetime guaranteed. You only had to pay $5 to get your new guarantee on your next pump. And it was like $75 bucks for the three-quarter horse one. And you went down to Harbor Freight, you got it, you registered it, and you went down and got ahead right away and bought another one. You registered that one too. You put one of them in your, your system, you turned it on. When it died, you just took the one off the shelf, replaced it, and uh, took, you didn't even take the other one back. You just you know, filed your warranty. They didn't want it back because a lot of them get used in um, chemicals and things like that. And they just gave you a new one. You paid your, went in the store, you paid five bucks, you got your new warranty on your new one, and you went on. They discontinued those pumps, maybe because so many people were working that system. I don't know. And uh, we're trialing some other dirty water pumps, actually David is, and to see if we can find something else, or uh, maybe they'll bring something else in that will fill that niche. I use one of those pumps in my system, my big system, that we're not going to really talk much about today. I use a pump in my, um, my aquatic system that I'm now incorporating aquaponics-like components into, uh, made by Danner, D-A-N-N-E-R. Uh, there's also a company named Danner that makes clothes, so if you start searching or shoes or something like that, you start searching on uh, Amazon, you might have a hard time finding it. I have a link to the, the, the one I use. It's about $140. Bucks. It's a 3,000-gallon-per-hour pump, and... It is plenty for the designs we're talking about today because what I'm doing with it is is significantly higher. Um, I have another pump that I recommend that's more of a you know a, a more uh, cost conscious pump. Uh, certainly has plenty of bang for the buck on smaller systems. It's made by a company called Active Aqua. I have a link in it today. A thousand gallon per hour one is fifty three dollars and forty four cents. I have the five fifty gallon per hour version of this pump. As a little extra aeration pump for my isolation tanks in my big system. It's, it runs really, really great. It's easy to maintain. There's one thing in it as far as a filter. You pull the case off, you rinse the filter out, you stick it back in, and it just keeps going. Um, those are the two pumps that I recommend. And if you're building one of these smaller systems, there's nothing wrong with going with the Active Aqua or any pump in the 500 to 1,000 gallon per hour range. You're going to be throttling it back anyway. Okay, um, but you know, if you have more pump than you need, your system becomes much more expandable. And I think what you'll find if you put a system in, even a relatively small system, that you'll start seeing opportunities to expand it, and you'll start seeing them everywhere. And you'll start realizing, even with a couple hundred or three hundred gallons of water, your system is almost infinitely expandable. You can put in a lot of grow space on you know, a 150-gallon stock tank or even a 100-gallon stock tank or a couple of those. And we'll, we'll talk about how to integrate those in, in, in just a bit. So definitely I think you want to choose a good pump. The next thing is a bulkhead. When you are making an ebb and flow bed and you are drilling a hole in you know, your tub or your stock tank or whatever it is, uh, unless it's pre-plumbed with a good bulkhead, you need a bulkhead. What's well, a bulkhead? Think of like a bulkhead of submarine. What a bulkhead does is allow the transfer of water from one side to the other, but through a controlled pipe. You drill a hole, you stick one end, and you screw the other end on, 
and it makes a seal. So if we put a pipe in there, we screw an adapter in there, stick a pipe in there, and that pipe stands up 10 inches, the water has to get up 10 inches and go on the pipe. That's all that a bulkhead is. Um, I have a link to the smaller systems I'm going to talk about today. work really well with three-quarter inch pipe. And the company that uh, makes them is uh, called Banjo. And I have a link to the three-quarter inch bulkheads from Banjo on uh, Amazon.com. If you're buying two, just go to Tractor Supply and buy them. They're like eight bucks a piece. And by the time you pay shipping on Amazon, you're right back there. Um, if you're buying six or seven or more, um, you'll save money by buying them on Amazon through the link that I'll put on there. So that's a, a very important component. They're about $8 at Tractor Supply again. Uh, and depending on the size of your system, you might need smaller ones or larger ones. But for you know the ebb and flow beds and smaller systems that we're going to talk about today, three-quarter works beautifully. So your bulkheads are an important component. Um, and I want to talk about what makes a, bul a bulkhead good. One, it's got to be beefy. It's got to have some substance to it. There's some bulkheads that it's really easy to attach a pipe to, but not a, they're, not, they're not wide enough. You can do it on both sides. You need a little adapter, a three-quarter threaded PVC adapter. You need one on the top and one on the bottom. So those are about $1.50. So for each bed, you're about $3 into those little adapters. And that lets you put a pipe on the bottom that'll pull on your siphon. And lets you put a top pipe on the top that'll set the height of your water level in your tank. Now, when you're when you're putting those in there, they screw righty tighty lefty loosey. So the other thing you want from a good bulkhead is it's backwards. The 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 compression nut on it should screw lefty tighty righty loosey. Why? So when you're screwing things into it, it doesn't unscrew from your whatever you have it attached to. So they're backwards. If you go to Tractor Supply to get them, they're not where you think they would be. They're like back where the fencing supplies are, real up high on the shelf. So you might have to actually ask somebody for help. And you know, it's 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 you know, pick your pick your poison when you go to Tractor Supply. You ask one person, they know everything. The other person's been there ten years, can't find their own ass with the two hands, right? Um, but yeah, it was a weird location they were in. But eight bucks a piece at Tractor Supply. Um, next, I want to talk a little bit about the basics of a bell siphon. And I, I'm not going to try to completely explain this and take 10 minutes on it because I, this is a video podcast. There's tons of videos on how to make them. But I think a lot of people struggle with how a bell siphon works. Nothing really moves. I think that's the important. It's not like things go up and down, right? The water goes up and down. All it is is we have a pipe. It's attached to that bulkhead. comes out the bottom. And you can look at my videos and you see how this all works. And the water flows up and starts flowing into that pipe. We have a bigger pipe. I use a three-quarter center pipe and a two-inch pipe going over it. That two-inch pipe covers the three-quarter inch pipe with an airspace above it. And at a certain point when that water is flowing through that pipe, you get negative pressure on the top. And it starts pulling. And even though the water now has gone down below the overflow point, it's pulling up the two-inch pipe and into the three-quarter inch pipe. Like a straw you stick your finger over. And you hear it, and water comes out way faster than it's coming in. And then at some point, we simply have a hole of some sort. It could be a breather tube that comes down the top. It could be a hole drilled in the bottom. I cut a slit about three-quarters of the way around the two-inch pipe with a, with a sawzall because then I have a really long break point for the siphon. And when the water gets down in there and enough air gets in there to break that siphon action... It's just like you let go of the straw and the water comes out. And it can't pull the water up and over anymore. 
and it starts filling again, and then the whole process repeats over and over and over and over. There's nothing in there that's mechanical from a standpoint of a moving part. Now, there are some fancy ones with floats and shit that are mechanical. I've had no problem building them out of PVC. So that's the that's what a bell siphon is actually doing. And I did a show recently where I talked about uh, 20 skills that kids should know before they're 14. I almost put build a bell siphon in there. Because what it opens up in an understanding of basic physics is pretty impressive. All right, That's the basics of a bell siphon. So I want to talk about some simple flood and drain systems and a few options for building them. I want to talk a little bit about the components that I'm going to use here. Okay, again, I already talked about the bulkhead, so I'll leave those out. Stock tanks for your fish tanks and or grow beds are a really great option. And the sweet spot in the Rubbermaid structural foam stock tanks is a 100-gallon tank. They sell for 80 bucks, and your tractor supply might have them on sale right now. Uh, I looked them up to get all my pricing to make sure it wasn't out of my head and wrong. I wanted to go high with the pricing. All my pricing is based on full retail with no sales prices. Uh, but when I went and looked at my local store, I had rain-checked in 10 100-gallon tanks. And the other location got them first, so I went and got them there. When they came in, I said, well, you can sell them to other people. So they have way overstocked. So they're on sale at my local uh, tractor supply for $60 bucks today. I bought four more because I'll need them for expansion. So you can get them at better prices. But that 100-gallon tank, is it's like $10 more than a 50-gallon tank. And it's like $70 less than the 150-gallon tank. So it's just this sweet spot. And it's very versatile. We can make a deep water bed with it. We can use it for a fish tank. And we can make a wicking bed in it. There's a lot of other things you can do. But those three work really be, be, uh, great in larger systems. I'm going to talk about smaller systems most of the day. So I'm going to suggest that makes a great for your small system out on your back deck or whatever, a, a basic fish tank. It's 100 gallons. If we're, going to, we're not going to fill it to the top. So let's say we're going to have 70 gallons in it. So we're going to have somewhere between 560 and 580 pounds on that tank. That's heavy. You ain't going to pick it up and, and carry it without training it. But most places you would put, even a balcony and stuff, it's not so heavy that it's going to be a danger, right? Where if we did something like, and I'm going to talk about using them to a 300-gallon stock tank, um, you know, that's kind of a different animal. You say you put about 270 gallons in that, leave about 30 gallons for some freeboard and some fluctuation up and down for when your water's flowing, but you're looking at 2,100 pounds. Even if we drop it down to 2,000 pounds, a full ton. So depending on where you're trying to fit this, what it's going to be sitting on, you want to think about the size of your fish tanks because it might even make sense in some situations to use a couple smaller tanks with their load distributed differently than one big tank with its load focused in one place. Okay, So we're talking about using Rubbermaid stock tanks, 100-gallon, 150-gallon, 300-gallon a day as a fish tank primarily. So this is your sump. So where your pump goes, your water goes, your fish goes. All right. And we're going to talk about making ebb and flow beds from 14-gallon concrete mixing trays that you can get at Lowe's for about $13 and change. We'll call them $14. Now, when I went to look them up on Lowe's website, it's as if they don't exist. They have a lot of product that's similar, bigger ones, smaller ones. They don't have these. Bullshit. They've been in every Lowe's that I've ever gone to. You go all the way over to where the masonry and the cement and stuff like that is. They'll be sitting on a shelf. There's two sizes at every Lowe's I've ever been to, 7-gallon and 14-gallons. In my research for this show, I found out that Home Depot has 
21-gallon versions of these trays. And I haven't looked at them yet, so I don't know if they're just deeper. And if they're just deeper, they would make a really great ebb and flow bed. If they're bigger but not deeper, they still might be a good idea, but you want to look at your dimensions and your footprint. Everything I'm going to give you as pricing today is based on using the 14-gallon ones from Lowe's. Those are the ones in my videos. They are an incredible bang for the buck. They're very well built. They're tough. They're designed for you to dump concrete and mix it in with a, mix with a shovel. So you know they're well built. For media, which is the thing we grow in an ebb and flow bed, I'm going to give you pricing today, again, with plain old lava rock. The stuff you buy in a bag, you put it out by your patio for landscaping, or dump it in an old-style gas grill as a heat retentive thing or something like that. Um, it's on their website at like 4 bucks and change, but I've been buying it whenever I've needed a little bit extra instead of going to the rock yard for $3.15 a bag at my local low. So that's the price that I'm using because it's the price that I'm paying. If you go buy lava rock at a rock yard, you will save a significant amount of money. Um, the 14-gallon tray takes five bags, and the bags that I'm buying anywhere are half a cubic foot. So it's two and a half cubic feet. All right, So five bags to do one bed. It's a significant amount of lava rock. If you, uh, if you run the numbers on that at $3.15 a piece, uh, then what we're looking at for, I'm pulling my pricing up so I make sure I get it right, $16.75 in rock to do one 14-gallon bed. So when you think, well, that's not that big, there's an advantage to it not being a 50-gallon stock tank. It is a little bit smaller of surface area, but it's a lot less expensive to fill, and we can fill three of them and still have some leftover rock compared to one 50-gallon stock tank. We'll have less money into the tanks at that point. We'll have a little less money in medium. We'll have more square footage to grow with. So there's, there's something to that depending on what, and I have 50 gallon stock tanks as ebb and flow beds as well. I'm just saying there's different size systems scaled in different ways and there's some advantages here. If we are buying rock from a rock yard, if you can go get it in a truckload at a time, my, I don't know what your price would be. I don't know whether you can get it on my price here and it's really a place I don't like to drive to unless I have to. Um, so unless I'm doing a lot, it's not worth the savings to me for me to drive down there because then I got all this rock to deal with. Uh, you know, it's heavy, you have to put it somewhere, that type of thing. Uh, but I pay $90 a yard. So at that price, it takes about $9 versus $16. So it's about a little not quite half price. A little but not quite half price of that. If we wanted to figure out the 21-gallon tubs that are available at Home Depot that I haven't checked out yet, we'd simply add a third to those prices because it's one-third larger. So filling that with lava rock by the bag would be $22.27. Or rate right at 12 bucks if we were doing it uh, to the 21-gallon uh, thing that I have not yet uh, tested. So I'm not sure that they're going to fit right in most systems. But the, again, the 14-gallon ones fit wonderfully, and they, they've done a great job of growing for both myself and David. Um, the, the total cost to build, this is all your pipes, all your fittings, everything, per bed, uh, depending on where you get your rock from, for a 14-gallon one, is $38 to $46 a bed. So $46, bucks, you are paying retail for everything. You're buying all your fittings one-off. You're not buying contractor pa packs of your fittings and stuff like that. You know, you're going to be up about $46. Bucks. If you buy your media in a rock yard alone, you'll drop it to $38. You probably drop it to about $35, $34 if you're you know buying your, your fittings and all in contractor packs. You know, buy them 10 at a time instead of one at a time. 
for a 21-gallon bed, you're looking at $42 to $52 per bed. Media, pipe fittings, all in. So this made me start kind of looking at how can we piece together different systems and try to keep our price, you know, um, with pumps, with everything, and, you know, from 300 bucks up to about 600 bucks, what could we do? And it's infinitely configurable, but here's, here's a couple ideas. Let's say you just want to try this thing out. You don't want to break the bank. And remember, you can put in less beds to start out just to kind of learn the basics and see if you like it and then expand it from there. And if nothing else, the biggest money you have into it is your stock tank and your pump. And you can probably do something with those if you decide to do something else. So if we did a 100-gallon stock tank and we put in four ebb and flow beds, and we would have to build some sort of a stand for those beds to go on. So there'd be some lumber cost there because we could put maybe two over the tank. And if you watch my videos, you'll see how I do. I just throw a couple two-by-fours over and set it right on top of it. It's a great idea to put one up there. It puts shade on your tank. It keeps your fish cool. It keeps your algae down. All right. You can fit two, but then it makes it really hard to get in there and deal with your fish. So you got to decide whether you want to do that or not. So we can build some sort of small lumber stand around it. And then we can put our four ebb and flow beds in, doing it with the 1,000-gallon pump, the $50 1,000-gallon pump, all in 310 bucks. And everything you need is available at Home Depot, Lowe's, and Tractor Supply. And you can pick one of the either the Home Depot and Lowe's. Every single thing. That's buying the, the lava rock by the bag, paying full retail. 310 bucks. And what you've got with four beds, when I first looked at laying my system out with David, I was like, man, I need more grow space. Until I started growing it, you can plant so densely because you're bringing exactly what the plants need to the plants. Your only uh, spatial limitation is, is a plant going to get enough sun and resources and space to spread out? And if we start doing things, again, with vining plants and give them some sort of a trellis, you know, we can have a cucumber that's way over here coming out of the trellis, and it's grown 10 feet along a wall, and it's taking up almost no bed space. That system, for 310 bucks will grow a ton of food for a family of four. It really will. And that's you haven't even thought about throwing in some wicking beds and maybe one deep water bed yet. And I'm sticking to just the flood and drain part because this is the part that's going to cost you the most and take the most amount of gaining of knowledge to be able to do. So let's say, Jack, I really want to do more. Well, you could just add two more grow beds to your 100-gallon stock tank. But let's say you want a little bit more water in your system. So now we're going to upgrade to a 150-gallon stock tank. And we're going to put six grow beds on it, six ebb and flow grow beds. We're going to put the same pump in it, that little 1,000-gallon pump, as long as we're not going too far or too high with it. We'll run that system just fine. And all in on that $460. So now we've got a 150-gallon Rubbermaid stock fish tank. We've got six ebb and flow beds, the 14-gallon ones. And we're running $460 again, all in, all retail. All right. Let's say you really wanted to go big, right? You wanted, like, more fish space. And let me say right now, the fish are a byproduct of this system. Whatever fish come out of that that you eat is a smaller piece of production than the vegetation ever will be. These systems are vegetable and, 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 and plant-growing systems that have a byproduct of fish. They're not fish-growing systems that have a byproduct of plants. And I love fish, and I love growing and raising my own meat. But there's just only so many fish are going to go into one of these systems. Um, I'll talk a little bit about fish toward the end today and fish selection. 
We do tilapia and bluegill are our primary species. We also do some ornamental stuff, koi and goldfish, stuff like that. And you can watch my videos for that. But we're going to go to a 300-gallon stock tank with six or more ebb and flow beds. We're going to cap the price at six. What if fit again? Now, at this point, we should be buying contractor packs of our fittings. We should be ordering our, our bulkheads on freaking Amazon and getting the discounted price because the shipping pays for itself now. We should be finding a freaking rock yard to buy our, um, our, our, our lava rock from, unless we just can't. And we should be cutting the media price in half, which is a huge part portion of this. But with the 300-gallon stock tank, full retail, uh, at Tractor Supply, six ebb and flow beds, you can build that with the pump for $570. I'd really recommend upgrading to the bigger 3,000-gallon-per-hour Danner pump in that size system. I actually recommend it for all of them, but it's not necessary. Even at this point, as long as we're not going too far out with our grow beds and we're not going too much higher than our system, we can build it for that. Now we're going to have to start thinking about some things, like how we're going to put a return line in and stuff like that. I'm not going to get into that today, but these are your base component prices. You're going to have a few valves and stuff like that you're going to want to put in as you get bigger. Uh, they'll like, you know, Valves and fittings are your expense. Pipes free, the way to look at it. Pipes cheap. End caps, bushings, fittings, valves. That's where all your money goes into these systems. But that, you don't have to get it, you don't have to do anything crazy with a system that size. At all. And all of your returns can pretty much just go right back and spill into the tank. Especially if you can put that tank, I would really recommend when you start getting this, where you're going to put in more than, let's say, four or five uh, ebb and flow beds. And this is a good idea anyway. Can you dig a hole and put that tank in the ground? Even, it's a two foot high tank. Now, the 300 gallon one I think is two and a half feet high. But even a foot down will make your life easier. Unfortunately, I can't do that here. But so we're going to do it that way, 570 bucks. But remember what I said. I said the 100-gallon tanks, those 100-gallon tanks are your sweet spot in pricing. So what if I say I want 300 gallons of water space, but I want three different tanks? Hmm. That's got to cost more than one 300-gallon tank, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. If you buy three of those 100-gallon stock tanks, set it up with six ebb and flow beds, all in $560. It costs $10 less. And again, we should be buying contractor packs and buying the, the rock in bulk at this point because of the volume. Now, what I'm going to tell you, though, is I really recommend thinking about upgrading to a better pump. The Danner pump that I have is a fantastic pump. I've had one running in my aquatic system for two years now. And I just bought another one before it. It's not even failed. It's working fine. I just bought another one because what I'm going to do is put a nice fresh one in there, clean out the other one, and make it my spare. I figure after two years, it's fought the good fight and run the good race. And at some point, running constantly like that all year long, it's going to fail. So we'll have that backup ready to go in the form of a used one, and we'll start running a new one. Okay? And you add $90 to all those prices to go with that better pump. And you can pick any pump you want. Um, there's a lot of great pumps that are probably significantly better than the $50 one I'm recommending, and they're not as expensive as the $140 one that I'm recommending. I'm just telling you I've used these two pumps. I'm happy with them. The amount of water they move for the amount of power they draw, that's what I look for reliability, positive reviews, and energy efficiency. Okay, And again, about $90 bucks, uh, to improve that efficiency. And then here's the other way I look at it. You can always use 
extra pressure or an extra pump. So if we go ahead and make the investment in the big 3,000-gallon pump, and we're, we're running that water to our four ebb and flow beds, we need our little, uh, you know, probably half-inch delivery lines for that will work just fine. And we have a little straight valve that we use to control how much water goes in them, and this is stuff you'll have to learn. Again, David and I are going to put together a course that's going to teach all this and more. Um, but once you set those, it's, once you get it dialed in, those ebb and flows just run. Okay? Say we have a ton of extra pressure available, and we don't have any place to send it yet. We just put a little standover pipe, like a little waterfall pipe, and we, we vent that extra pressure straight there with force, and we put oxygen in our system. Okay? Now, let's say we buy the little one, and over time we upgrade our system, gets bigger and bigger, and we say, now I've got to buy the bigger pump. Well, then... We take the bigger pump and we use it to run our, our, our lines that are going out to either wicking or ebb and flow or deep water and coming back to return. We take the little one and we set it in there and we use it for oxygen. Or we set up a second water tank, we put it in there, we don't even use it unless we need it. We set up that tank so we can isolate it from the system. We turn that pump on so when we bring new fish into the system, we isolate that one. And we throw our new fish in there and we observe them and make sure they're not going to contaminate our existing fish which is exactly what I've done in my large system. Now, here's another advantage, other than saving the 10 bucks to doing 300-gallon tanks over one 300-gallon tank. We can now have fish, especially if we use local fish that don't die in our winters, in three different growth stages in our system. We can have big, medium, and small. And when the big ones graduate to the frying pan, the medium ones graduate to the big, the big kids' uh, tub, the little ones graduate to the medium, and new little ones come in at the bottom. That's another advantage. We can do different species that would otherwise be harmful to each other. Goldfish are a great investment. I know it doesn't sound like it, but they are. You go to PetSmart or Petco, and you get the like the 15 cent feeder goldfish. That are, and what you say to the girl, she'll hate you for it. But what you say to her is, "I want 50 of them, or I want 25, or whatever it is you want." But here's the only thing: I don't want any that are just orange. I want silver, black, gray, mottled colors, orange with polka dots, whatever. You put them in there. And five, ten of them, two or three years later, will be beautiful. Big, long, silky fins. And you could sell those on Craigslist. Seriously, to some yuppie that wants them for their ornamental pond. For like 50 bucks. And you just pay for your fish food for, what, half a year? That's, that's the kind of thing I've learned from David. And that we're incorporating in this course exactly how to do this stuff. Right? But we can do that. But guess what happens if we take those pretty little goldfish and we dump it in a tank with a bunch of bluegill? You'll come back to a bunch of goldfish with like their asses eaten off, dead, and sparkly scales. Bluegill, unless the goldfish is larger than the bluegill, significantly will tear the shit out of goldfish. They just bully them, they beat them, and they eat them. Now, if you have enough hiding places and everybody can find their own spot, it's less likely. But in a big open tank... They just beat them up. So if we wanted to put some goldfish in there, because they're a great source of ammonia, they're cheap, um, they are good cycling fish because they're hardy, they're hardier than the bluegill, with two or three tanks, we can separate those species. Now here's probably the biggest advantage if you're doing small scale and you want to do a lot of beds. Remember I said we could throw two 2x4s? over a 100-gallon stock tank, and we can just take one of those concrete mixing trays and set it on there and make our ebb and flow, and it drops straight in? Well, if we buy a 300-gallon tank, you could probably fit three of them up there like that. It's going to be really cumbersome, 
And it's going to be hard to get in with a net and access your fish or clean the tank out or do those other things, maintenance on your pump. But if we set three of those tanks in a row and we plumb them together on a level surface so they all fill and drain at the same rate, so they're like one big tank connected together, and they can be pretty far apart, so they'll do that. We can put one of those ebb and flow beds over each one. We provide perfect shade. We still have plenty of access space to get into that tank. So now if we want six beds, we only need a rack that will hold three with a single return line that comes to any one of those three, and all the water equalizes. So you th I think you can see where I'm going with this. Yes, IBCs have their place. And yes, you can get them cheaper. Sometimes you can get them really cheap. But they're big, they're cuby, they're blocky. And they're tall. And we have to start cutting cages and stuff like this. These stock tanks are pre-plumbed. They're virtually indestructible. Their life cycle is longer than yours is. And they're very rigid and just throwing a couple 2x4s up there, we can put our ebb and flow beds in. So I, I, I'm kind of advising you to consider that as an option. Now, I have two 330-gallon IBCs on my large system. But it's a huge system. It, it, it's running a massive amount up into my quail aviary. I'm talking about building something in a backyard. It, it, it's Since they're smaller in frame... They're a lot easier to do something like, let's build a pretty little box out of cedar around it and make it look good. So mom's happy too. Or so that the HOA people don't understand what you're doing. You got me? So there's a lot of advantages to these. And I think you're also kind of feeling me when I'm saying, if you want a lot of water in your system, 300s is probably a better choice than 1-300. It's so much more infinitely flexible. Okay. So, again... All of my numbers are adding uh, are, are at the $50 price point for your pump. Add 90 bucks to them, but I'll go just down the list again real quick. 100-gallon tank, four ebb and flow beds, 310 bucks. 150-gallon stock tank with six ebb and flow beds, 460 bucks. Let me just say I put it in there because I know some of you would want to do it. I would never make that choice for all the reasons I just said. Three 100-gallon stock tanks with six or more ebb and flow beds, $560. And a 300-gallon stock tank with six or more ebb and flow beds, $570. And again, if you simply make the decision to buy your media in bulk, your, your lava rock in bulk, you'll save enough to pay for the upgraded pump of 90 bucks. Easy on the large, like, like these, you know, six or more beds. It's, it's really kind of pays for itself at that point. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about incorporating deep water or wicking into these designs. I think you should, but I think you should start out with this. Start out with what I gave you. And then figure out where you can think from the beginning, kind of sketch it out. Where can I put one, just one wicking bed in there? And I would build that probably from a hundred gallon stock tank. Though there's a lot of other options that you could use with it. But I would put at least one wicking bed in there because now you have a soil bed. And I would think about putting in one, one deep water bed because it does such a good job. And all we have to do is get it elevated high enough that when we overflow it, we can run it back into our sump, our lowest tank in the system. And again, putting them on a patio or a porch is great. A lot of people do it. It works great. If you have a spot, though, where you can dig a hole even a foot deep and get that lowest tank a foot down, it lowers the height requirement of your entire system by a foot. I wish I could. Okay? I can't. I wish I could. Because some of my beds, I have like a, a thing, a deck, a little metal deck thing that you stand on to get up to the beds. They sell them at Home Depot and Lowe's for like 50 bucks. They're great. But I, I would much rather just have the stuff, you know, like 
chest height or lower, but I can't get them lower because of that. So again, it's another reason to think about things like IDCs versus the stock tanks. We can get that system lower. But I definitely think you should look at doing it. I'm not going to go into exactly how to do it because, again, it's a very visual thing. But just a, one of each with those four to six wicking beds and you know these, these systems built on a, a couple hundred or 300-gallon tanks, more food than you're going to know what to do with. More food than you'll know what to do with. I also want to talk about something else. Shade. I think if you are in a place that's fully exposed to sun and you're in the south, at a minimum, you should build some sort of a coverage with 30% shade cloth or higher. But I think that's your minimum. Or you need to find a place where, yeah, there's sun, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the evening, but by like 5 o'clock, it's in shade. So you think about your house, your solar aspect, things like that. I kind of rolled the dice because I wanted the birds to be comfortable when I built the aviary, and I had 60% shade cloth already, and I'm like, we're just going to run with that and see how it does. Anybody you talk to would say that's too much shade over plants. My plants say they're wrong. Now, I live in central Texas, all right? It's hot as shit here. And we haven't even gotten the growing into the full, long, you know, still light out at 9 o'clock, heavy, intense sun yet. So we'll see. And if, if I determine this year that it's hurting growth sufficiently, you know, I'll drop to like 40% shade. But for now, I'm running 60% shade cloth over my area. The area I'm going to do a major expansion in is the other choice. And that is, I have sun on it till 20, and what, there's a, the shadows kind of come out over time. And the earliest, some of it will be in shadow, is 4 in the afternoon-ish, and the latest about 5, 5.30. And we'll figure out the hardiness of our plants based on who needs more shade in these two rows of beds. But in your small systems too, shade, 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 shade. Not all the time. Um, and, and understand there's a difference between 100% shade for half the day and 50% shade for the entire day. I know it sounds like the same thing, but it's not because there's constantly light hitting it where it's getting almost no light when it's like a building shade. It's only getting ambient light from around. It's not getting any penetrating light. But when you have a shade cloth, you're getting you know 40 to 50% put on your shade of, of light coming through it for the entire duration of the day. And in these really intense climates, the plants can only make use of about 60% at maximum of the light that hits them if they're fully exposed. After that, they begin transpiration, which is a plant sweating. So really think about strategic use of shade cloth or positioning with solar aspects so you get that eastern sun is the best. It's absolutely the best. I want to give you some additional ideas and thoughts. I want to talk about adding what I, what I would call a duckweed biofilter. Um, having my aquatic system, which is a series of garden ponds, has really convinced me of how amazing of a plant duckweed is. I just had a massive algal bloom. I got a hold of a few cups of duckweed, dumped it in there, and in three days, the water's crystal clear. You see the bottom. It's, it's that good. Here's your problems. Fish eat it, and it doesn't like to be disturbed. Now, the way I handled it in my garden ponds is I put enough in there the fish can eat some, and I won't run out because it reproduces very, very quickly. And I took the overflow, and, I, and, and in my video list, you can see the video where I did this, and I took a bucket. So when my overflow goes into the pond that was creating all this disturbance, duckweed likes still water. And it's a very, very tiny plant, and if it's constantly getting pummeled, it eventually dies. And it can't form a mat and get its roots in place like it likes to. It's just a little floating plant. 
So I put a bucket in, I put a bag of lava rock in it, I drilled a bunch of hole in the bucket in the bucket first, set it up on a center block and a half, so the top of the bucket's above the water line, and ran my overflow under there. So now my overflow goes into the bucket, through the lava rock, another biofilter, comes out the bottom of the bucket. But the top surface of the water on the main pond stays nice and still, even though it's being disturbed like crazy, oxygenating it in the bucket, and thereby oxygenating the whole thing. Okay, That's one way to do it. In these smaller systems, that really isn't going to work because you got a very intensely heavy fish population in there. It's small. We're shading it. So here's what we could do. We take any type of a container, but, you know, one of these 14 to 21-gallon concrete mixing trays would work. We build some, because I, I, I missed one thing that I left out. When you're doing a bell siphon, you've got your three-quarter pipe in the middle, right? You've got your two-inch bell siphon over top of it with a break point. And then you usually take something like a four-inch pipe, And like cheap drain pipe, the really cheap stuff, like for French drains, is really great. We cut some slits or drill some holes in it. David says do slits. Because if you drill holes and you have to stick your hand in there to clean roots out when they get in there, it's like a cheese grater for your hands. So cut some slits in it. And that sleeve keeps the media out so your, your lava rock doesn't get in and mess up your siphon. And you can stick your hand down in there and pull the pipe out and set it lower or higher If you want to change how much water is in your system, really nice to be able to work on all that stuff. Something's messed up, you can get in there without having all the rock collapse on it. So we do the same thing, and we weight it down somehow. I haven't built one of these yet, but I have no doubt that it would work. And we create basically a constant flow bed with the water filled up with a little bit of freeboard so it doesn't overflow. We set that high enough in the system, the water can drain back down. There's no siphon in this one. But we have that 4-inch sleeve, or even a 2-inch sleeve, around our overflow. And we just have it somehow weighted down so it doesn't float away. Now, the water comes in to, this, to the system, and we bring the, the entrance. So we have our, our, our delivery line. Instead of delivering it on the surface to make air, we're doing that other places. We don't need it here. We bring it in at the bottom, and we bring it in very slow. So it's a very slow current. And so we don't disturb the duckweed with that. And when the water overflows, it doesn't suck the duckweed in and pull it down under And that way, we have a very reliable system, and our duckweed stays there. We just put one of those in our system. We put it in a place that gets you know, about 50% sun. is about what duckweed really likes. And we have all that extra biological filtration, because this stuff is amazing. It also, in ideal situations, doubles its size in like 48 hours. I've never been able to get it to do that, but I get it to grow pretty fast. Fast enough that once a week, you could take 30% of it off the surface and feed it to your fish if you have fish that eat it. Or mix it in your feed for your poultry if you have fish that eat it. You can actually eat it yourself. Or just use it as a high-nutrient mulch on your plants. Spread it in your wicking bed as a mulch. You got it? And it'll just come back. And since a fish can't get to it, it'll do its job. It won't get disturbed. It'll sit up there and be this extra full. And now you're not here trying to put in a slow spin filter. You're just using biology, which is the best way. It's passive. And you've got a product that's useful. Now here's where it gets interesting. We can throw minnows in there. They'll eat some duckweed, but they're not going to eat that much. Now we've got minnows. Now we've got bait. If we're doing any kind of carnivorous fish, even if they are pellet trained, if they'll eat minnows, we can throw those in. What if we're using bullhead catfish as our fish? We have to, we're, at this rate, we're still going to have to feed them. But you know, once a week, we can go up there and take a little dip net. When we get our duckweed out, take a few minnows, pitch them in there. It's a little protein boost for them. Your minnows are breeding there. Put a couple cups in there with some gravel in them, sunk to the bottom. 
You got breeding minnows, you got duckweed going, and it's all dramatically, dramatically simple. We can put guppies in there and be selling them to a freaking pet store as ornamental guppies. We can put mosquito fish in there. If we have any kind of mosquito problems around us, whenever there's standing water for too long, we can throw mosquito fish in there. Awesome stuff, huh? Okay, next thing I want to talk about is how to make an aquarium siphon. I learned this from David. We, I still have a valve we haven't taken out yet in one of our IBCs, and it was was not returning water to the, the, the pump tank fast enough, and therefore it was building up like a lock in a canal system and overflowing. We're losing water out of the system. So David comes over and shows me like two minutes. It makes me feel like a dumbass how to make these freaking aquarium siphons. All aquarium siphon is is three pieces of PVC pipe and two elbows. And the two pieces, and you make like a, almost a square, right? So you got a top piece going across and two legs coming down. And it's so like a square. Again, these are in my videos. And you, f you make the, the piece that goes across long enough so it can sit in two tanks. You fill it up with water and you put your hands over it. And you quickly flip it around into the tank so the water stays in there. And you set it on your two tanks. And you, again, you want them the same length, the, the downward verticals, the same length. So what happens now is you have a siphon, but if the two tanks are dead level, it just sits there and does nothing. If one starts to go down and it's too low and the other one's up, it pulls water from the high side to the low side until they equalize and vice versa. So remember when I said you could take 300-gallon tanks and plumb them common together on the bottom? If you didn't want to use the bulkheads, you just want to leave them there and you wanted maximum flexibility in your system to be able to isolate things and not worry about it, and not be buying valves to shut things off and all, you could take some two-inch pipe and some two-inch elbows, or even one and a quarter would be plenty, or a couple half-inch. They're basically free, because if you ever needed to sell them, it comes apart. Remember I said pipe's cheap, fittings are expensive? You can always pull them apart. You just dry fit them. You set that, you turn that over, boom. And now you can bring all your water back into one tank, and it'll siphon and equalize between the three. Completely passive, And the only way it can fail is if the water gets goes down far enough that the siphon breaks. It goes down below, so make them long. And freaking fish can even swim up and through them, so you want a screen on the bottom of them or something like that. Um, but, I mean, that, unless you've got really small fish, that's not much of a, of a problem. I've never had any of my fish do it yet. Um, and we have three of them sitting in there for redundancy. And that's the thing. You put, instead of just doing one between each tank, so if you did three tanks, you'd need two. One from, this, the let's say, number one to number two, and number two to number three. But build four of them. So there's, if one gets failed, it gets knocked over, the kid touches it, your system doesn't overflow and lose, lose sink. Because, again, they're cheap to do. So aquarium siphons are a good thing that you should be able to, to consider using. Another thing is the pump is where your money is. So there's a couple ways to keep less gunk from getting into your pump. One is a bucket trick. Again, though, you're going to have to stand it up so the top of the bucket is above the surface of the water when it's at its highest point. And it may or may not be easy to do that. And your pump never goes on the floor of a freaking fish tank. You put a rock in there, a cinder block, something, we lift it up, you know, so that it's, it's not down there at the bottom sucking in the stuff that's at the very lowest point. So we take that bucket, we drill a bunch of really small holes in it, We put some rock in the bottom of it. We set that bucket on another thing that brings it up off the bottom. We put our pump in the bucket. We just want to make sure that there's enough holes in that bucket the water can get in there every bit as fast as the pump is capable of expelling it out so we don't drain down the bucket. Okay? So lots of holes, lots of small holes. That'll do a good job of keeping a lot of gunk out. It's cheap, it's effective, and it works. The other option is there are things called aquarium bags. And I've, talk, I've heard people talk about using pantyhose and stuff like that. 
that's a recipe for like fine particulate matter totally clogging your pump. Because there should be a filter inside the pump body as well. Okay? Uh, which occasionally needs to be shut your pump off, disconnect it, take it out, clean it out. Unless you're using a dirty water pump where you would not have to do that. Um, but they make a bag. And Danner, the same people that make the good pump, make a really big nylon mesh bag that has a life cycle, again, longer than you do. And it's like 24 bucks. I think it's worth it to protect your pump. I have one on mine. Um, I could do the bucket trick, but I just think this is a better solution. But either one works. You don't have to do either one of these. And depending on your, you know, if you look at my large system where there's a, a, a solids filter in it and it's sitting in that solids filter all by itself, it's not in a fish tank because the pump we use in there would be chopping fish up. It's basically a pump on top of a garbage, garbage disposal. You don't need that. But in a pond where the pump is in with the fish and the gunk that gets in there, it makes a lot of sense, especially your outdoor systems where stuff falls out of the trees and things like that. Um, Next, when do IBCs make a lot of sense? Large-scale systems. They hold a lot of water in a small footprint. It's, it's a taller footprint, but it's a smaller cubic footprint than, let's say, you know, a 300-gallon tank that's a, a shorter tank. You can go up or out. So they make a lot of sense for that. They make a lot of sense in places where you can use a sump, a low, a low tank to work with the system, or you can use two pumps. So we can overcome some issues that we won't get in today. Um, when you move hobby scale to the edge of commercial, right? I guess that's another fancy way of saying large systems. When you can get them cheap and they're readily available. Uh, when you have no concerns whatsoever about what has been in them in the past, as far as chemicals, so you know they're food grade. When you just want them, when you like working with them. Um, I don't want you to think what I've said today is like anti-IBC. I'm just bringing you an alternative because everybody and their brother on YouTube is making aquaponic systems with IBCs. And then people go on Craigslist and they can't find them in local area and things like that and they get frustrated and I just can't do this or they show their wife and their wife goes, that's ugly, I don't want that. I'm just trying to give you a way to do it where it can look really nice. It doesn't have to be so industrial. Everything can be bought at a department store so it's not anti-IBC. I want to hear a little bit about media now. So lava rock, expanded shale, and expanded clay pebbles, and, and how I think they're, they're best used. Lava rock is your best bang for the buck. It's cheap. It works. It drains very, very well. And when you look at it, it looks like an asteroid or something, man. There's, there's a bazillion little holes in every rock. And one of those little rocks has more surface area than the walls of the room you're sitting in. I know that doesn't seem to make sense, but it does. I want you to think about it this way. Think about a relatively small pond that has a lot of, like, fingers and forks and stuff on it. And you can, like, you know, swim across the pond in, in, in a couple minutes at the most. But if we were to take that pond and make, take a string and follow the, the shoreline the entire way and stretch that string out, it would be much longer than the pond appears to be. If you've ever bought fencing to go around, a rel like, a go around trees, a relatively small circle, like an eight-foot circle around uh, a small area and excluder, and you realize how much freaking fence you need for that diameter... You get what I'm saying. Now, with a piece of lava rock, that's all compounded because that little, all those holes, and you're going into, you're not just going that one linear dimension. You're going to all three dimensions with all of that space. Okay, so it's great for that. Again, when I've built bell siphons, when I'm using 100% lava rock, 
they always are easy to get dialed in because there's a thing with a bell siphon where you have to have the water coming in fast enough to trigger it. If it's just piss trickling in there, it'll get up to the overflow and it'll never trigger the siphon. But it also has to be slow enough that when it gets down to break, there's not so much water coming in that it'll just keep the siphon going. It'll try to break and it'll just fill back up, try to break and fill back up. Whenever I use Lava Rock, that's incredibly easy. You play them with expanded shell this year is where I've had a little more trouble getting it dialed in because it doesn't drain as fast. Okay? The bad thing about Lava Rock is when you plant into it, it's a pain in the ass. It kind of cuts in your fingers. It, it collapses back on itself, so sometimes it's hard to get plants into it. The, be, the best way I've found is you get a long, narrow uh, garden trowel, good solid one, and you jam it in the Lava Rock, and you just wiggle it so you get it as deep as you want it, and you push off to one side and push your plant roots down in. And then you slide that out. works really, really well. Smaller lava rocks, a little easier to plant into. The rock yard we can get it from, they have it in inch and a quarter and three, or inch and a half and three quarter. And three quarter sounds like a great idea, and I've never seen it because it's never there when I go get it. So uh, you can the stuff that comes in a bag is generally um, inch and a half, and that's the size of the largest pieces. And you'll see down in the three-quarter and smaller in there. So three-quarter, your largest pieces are three-quarter and down from there. I'm a little hesitant to use all three-quarter. Our plan has always been let's get a bucket of each and mix it and just kind of take the size down. But we haven't had the opportunity to try it yet. But it's the cheapest of everything. Uh, expanded shale. The aquaponics people I've looked at online, they're using expanded shale, are using pretty large expanded shale, like three-quarter inch. Or like the size of like 2B stone, if you know what that is. I've never seen that available. I can't buy it. I guess it's a specialty product for aquaponics people. Here we have a very small expanded shell that is generally used as a soil amendment. You have a lawn. You want to keep it nice and green. You want to irrigate less. You spread this stuff out on your lawn, and it gets incorporated into your soil, and it holds moisture, and it lightens soil, or you till it into soil, and it, it, it's a great soil amendment. We're trying it. We're not sure how good it's going to work, but it was cheap, and we figured, why not give it a shot? The best way I've, I've, I've used it so far, is remember I said it takes five bags of lava rock to fill one of those concrete mixing trays? Three bags of lava rock and cap it with expanded shell. So that way we still have the big drainage down below. And after playing it with a bit, I think it would almost work better to do four bags of lava rock and just maybe three and a half and cap less and get more of that fast-draining lava rock into the whole system. We'll see over time. But it's it, you know if you have a rock yard near your place, it may be available. You know A half a yard to a yard of that stuff goes a long way. Then the other thing, and this is the one that all of the, the big-time aquaponics people are so in love with right now, is expanded clay pebbles. These look like little terracotta marbles, which is basically what they are. They're very light. They're very easy to plant in. They're very easy to work with. They're also very expensive compared to lava rock. I think the best way to use those, if you can find them at some sort of a reasonable price, fill your system three-quarter with lava rock and just do your top with that. So you're planting into the pebbles, or maybe you're just barely planting into the lava rock beneath them. little addition on, on that note, your ebb and flow beds. If you can see water at the top of your media before it triggers, you're, you're set too high. You want that water to come up maybe a half inch to an inch from the surface so the top stays dry, you don't get algae growth up on top of there. Next, another thing that I've re really come to appreciate is plant propagation with ebb and flow. So much so that I'm going to probably take an ebb and flow bed that's completely in a shaded area because I really don't have the 60% shade, but it'd be just absolutely shaded. Um, 
and I can just shade the little bed itself with just a little you know shade topper and uh, use it just for doing things like rooting goji cuttings, um, rooting um, mulberry cuttings, and uh, rooting, I'm rooting some passion flower. And I'm doing this like where it's not get. I guess I should take it inside the the aviary and do it, but just to see if it would work at all. I put it out where it gets a lot of sun for part of the day. And uh, I've got passion flower vine that I pulled off one of my passion flowers, and uh, I've had them in the uh, the ebb and flow bed with the expanded shell for like three days, and I pulled one out. They all look green. They all look pretty happy. Um, I pulled one out today, and it had little hair roots just starting on it in three days. So that's that's great. Mint roots, like it, well, mint roots if it touches the ground, right? But mint roots almost immediately. Uh, sweet potato slips root so freaking fast in these systems. Um, so fast that you need to make sure you keep an eye on them so that they don't like really start to establish themselves if you're going to want to move them somewhere else. So I just think there's a lot of plant propagation that can be done with, with ebb and flow as far as cuttings into them. Uh, and and it, it works really good with the, uh, the deep water bed with that moving water. It's way better than just sticking stuff in a, uh, like a jar or something like that as well. But your stuff that really won't root just sitting in a, a jar of water seems to root really, really well on your ebb and flow beds. You don't want to use rooting hormone in an ebb and flow bed because it's bad. It's a harsh chemical. Uh, if you did, I would say the powdered kind that you just dip the tip of the plant into, just a small amount, you could do that. I haven't needed it at all for the plants, but they've been pretty easy. But your other option is get some willow, some willow buds from just like a weaving willow or any kind of willow tree, and just mash it up really, really good. And uh, maybe dilute it half with water, so you got like a paste and dip your cuttings into that. Willow has its own kind of natural rooting hormone in it. That's why it's so easy for willow to root. And uh, it's not toxic. You can eat it. It, wouldn't, it doesn't taste good, but it wouldn't hurt you. All right? So that's that would be a safe rooting hormone to use. And I'm thinking I should take a bunch of willow cuttings, stick them in one of my oven flow beds, get them rooted, and plant them into this one berm that I can't get much to grow into because of the ducks compacting it, and basically making a willow fence there. From all those cuttings, which is free. And if it doesn't work, it's still free. So, you know, there's a lot you can do with that. And then the other thing that I found with ebb and flows, you can do this with some other things, but ebb and flows work really great for it, is replanting produce. Um, I have two heads of lettuce that are growing in the expanded shell beds right now that were from lettuce that we bought for the workshop. Because I can grow more lettuce than I can eat, but I can't grow enough lettuce to feed, you know, 60 people for three days. I just can't. So we had two heads of romaine that were left over. They were kind of sad. Like they were like the cooks put them in the refrigerator, and I didn't know about it. And you know, we had everything going on with the family this last week. So like a couple days ago, I, I go in there, and I'm like, oh, we have two heads of romaine in here. I pull it out. It's kind of brown and like not real happy. So I start pulling the outer leaves off of it, and you know, maybe 30% of it looked nice. Well, I pulled it all the way down to a little tiny mini plant with the whole root intact and like you know the last little heart of romaine there, took all of that shit and fed it to the ducks. They were happy as shit to eat it. I took those two little hearts, stuck them in the ebb and flow, and they're like white, you know, because they don't get any sun. Three days later, they're green, they're putting on new growth, and they're, they're growing. So, if you do go to the grocery store, and you do buy something like lettuce, and you have an ebb and flow bed, instead of just hacking the shit out of it, you pull the leaves off it, you leave the heart, drop it in your ebb and flow bed, you're going to get two or three or more harvests out of it so that one-time purchase is actually like buying two, three, or four for the price of one. And you know how lettuce goes off, like I just said. Well, if you're cutting if you're cutting from the outside and letting it come back, you only take what you need as you need it. So that's another really great thing. 
Um, you can, like I said, you can start plants and you can start produce. Like if you buy organic ginger root, you drop that in ebb and flow bed and you'll get it running really, really quick. And maybe we're going to move it somewhere else. But it's, it's just another thing that you can do. And when I realized all this about aquaponics, I didn't really switch to aquaponics. I decided to use aquaponics as a tool to incorporate with my perennial systems and my, my animal-based systems. And so I hope today's show has really made a lot of sense to you guys and made you think, you know, aquaponics, maybe that's for me. Maybe that's not like what I used to say, which is a really nice thing for you to do. Like, it's a really nice thing for everyone to do is kind of how I feel about it now. All right, with that, if you enjoyed today's show, I really recommend that you support us by doing your Amazon shopping whenever you're going to shop on Amazon at tspaz.com. Go to tspaz.com, and you can click a link there. It'll take you over to the Amazon deals of the day. You get to the Amazon deals of the day, and uh, you don't want them. You just search for stuff. You find whatever you're going to buy. I don't care what it is. Like I keep mentioning, I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but some guy at least once a month buys a box of dog diapers. I guess he's got an incontinent older dog or something like that, or he's running a rescue or something, and you know we get credit for that. So no matter what you're going to buy, if you buy it through T-Spaz, you help us out. Now, here's the other thing that, that we do. We put out reviews every day. And today's item of the day is a book that I talked about yesterday. When we were doing the history segment, I had this flood of memories come back of reading this book. And um, the book is called Survival, Building on the Hard Times, a POW's Inspiring Story by Gerald Coffey, U.S. Navy Captain Retired. He's an amazing man, and he's still out speaking of something. I thought today, you know what? The history I have with how much his book affected me so many years ago, if he's still in a speaking, I, I'm going to reach out to him and see if he'd be interested in becoming a guest on the show. But instead of telling you what the book's about, I want to tell you the story of how I read this book. The book was actually published in 90 or 91. I have conflicting information about that. I first read it in 92 when I was deployed to a remote area of Honduras as a soldier. And many of you heard the Rewind episode on the Aguan River Valley. That's the deployment I'm talking about. I was attached to a company called the 536 Combat Engineers as part of a logistical support element, which meant basically without us, they couldn't do their job. We were food, we were their water, we were their medicine, we were their higher-level maintenance on their vehicles, which is what I was there for, things like that. We lived in tents. We crapped in outhouses and 55-gallon drums under them. We urinated in pipes that were driven into the ground and tried not to get stung in, in, in the nether regions while you're taking a pee. you know. And we were in this place on a deployment for 190 days. So like all soldiers, we did a fair amount of bitching about our situation. We bitched about our beer ration, which was two beers a day. We bitched about our MREs for lunch every day. And one day my commander, an amazing captain named Captain Walsher, he was a West Point graduate, he said to me, Hey, Spirico, read this book. I think it will make a big impact on you. And he tossed a book to me that had been heavily read, I could tell. But it seemed like a new book, just like it had been used a lot. And he says, I think that book has been passed around to dozens of soldiers by now. When you are done, find the right person to send it to next. Before I continue, let me say that the captain who gave me this book was the finest officer I have ever served under in my military career. There's no one, I, I wouldn't even just say the finest I would say no one else came close to this captain. He was an amazing man. I would have followed him into combat without a second thought. He was that good. And this wasn't in order. I knew he would never bother me about it again. But we had a good relationship, even though I was only a private. And I think we both knew I was damn well going to read that book. 
That night I sat down on my cot with my two-beer ration from the PX Trail and I started reading. I got, I think, about one-third through it that night, reading by flashlight while my seven tent mates slept. The next day was a Sunday. It was our one day a week off. I settled under a huge rubber tree with my MRE lunch, which all of a sudden seemed quite appetizing and read further. By chow time for dinner, I was finished with the book. That night, as I watched a steaming pile of chili mac, which chili macaroni, generally dreaded by soldiers, ladled on my plate, I was grateful for it beyond words. Oh, and not just for the plate of chili mac, I was grateful for the plywood shack where I took a shower, sometimes even with warm water. I was grateful for the MRE from that afternoon, even though it was tuna noodles, also known by soldiers as nine lives. I was grateful for soap. I was grateful to sleep on a cot. I was grateful for the 15 acres of the camp, even though we were mostly locked inside it and jokingly called it Macora Penitentiary. That night I drank a beer with a buddy and looked at the stars. I've always loved the stars, but this night I was more grateful for them than I'd ever been in my life. In this book, Captain Coffee recounts his years as a POW in North Vietnam. It begins with being shot down, handed over to the Viet Cong, and all that occurred after that. How POWs used tapping on the walls to communicate, the rancid food they lived on, how they were tortured and forced to sign confessions as war criminals and more. The book continues up to the point of eventual release and what coming home after such things was like. I read the book two more times before passing it off to a good friend. I know it went through three more men before the last guy to get it took it with him to his next duty station, and I do hope that he passed it on from there. If you are military, current, or prior service, you will love this book, but anyone will be deeply moved by it. I also think it would be a great book for our children once old enough. Personally, I'd say that's about 14 years of age because there's some rough stuff in it, but parents, you should read it yourself first and make that decision about that. Um, I, I think our young people need to read this book. Uh, you know, we, we, the millennial generation that I'm always ragging. I, I think anybody who thinks they've got it tough in the world needs to read this book, because this isn't some, you know, far away thing. Even though it happened in a far away place, this is a real human story of determination and survival that lasted years, and it puts things in perspective. And all of a sudden, the things that you take for granted, you won't so much anymore. I was really happy yesterday when I remembered that book and I looked it up on Amazon and saw that it was available and saw that it's in like an edition, like it's now being printed again. And uh, I, I think it's an important book that should be read to truly understand history. Again, the book is called Beyond Survival, Building on the Hard Times, a POW's Inspiring Story by Gerald Coffey. Just an incredible book. And again, if you have older children, I recommend that you uh, read a copy for yourself first and then maybe even read it together and discuss it because it'll, it'll, it'll help you guide that young person through understanding what it really takes to get by when the chips are down. And sometimes what we call the chips being down isn't a big deal at all. It'll give you a little perspective. And I have to say that Gerald Coffey is one of my heroes. And so I'm going to reach out and see if I can get him on the show. I don't know if he'll do it or not, but... I'd love to have him on, and I'd love to share his book with you today at tspaz.com. Next up, let's talk about today's song of the day. And I talked about in the history segment how we, as we look ahead, many of us that were born about my time will not see our third centennial as a nation, and we weren't old enough or were born just after our second. 
and when we have to look ahead and see all the wonderful things we are going to experience and maybe look forward to that you know 250 year uh, mark for the United States of America and our Declaration of Independence. And uh, this song fits so well with that. And it was actually because of a mistake that John Adam made that this is the song for today because he, he initially had Bohemian Rhapsody is coming out in 76. So we had to fix that, you know. And he gave me two songs for 76 then, and I picked Bohemian Rhapsody yesterday. The song is by Styx, and it's called Crystal Ball. It's a pretty freaking awesome song. Let me give you a few of the lines. I used to like to walk the straight and narrow line. I used to think that everything was fine. Sometimes I'd like to sit and gaze for days through sleepless dreams, all alone and trapped in time. Doesn't that describe many of you when you first discovered that things weren't quite right? Wasn't there a time before you took that, you know, that, that red pill of the matrix and woke up that you just figured I'll just do what, see the straight and narrow people take that as, you know, being a good person. I don't think that's what they mean here. I think they mean doing what society expects of you, which would include things like racking up student debt that you're never going to be able to pay pay off, running credit card debt, getting a good job and staying there for the rest of your life, even though that doesn't really exist anymore. That's the straight and narrow line, not just being a good person and thinking that everything was, it'll all just be okay. I don't need to worry about anything. I don't need to be prepared. Next stanza. I wonder what tomorrow has in mind for me. Or am I even in its mind at all? Wow. That's actually deep for this like 70s rock band, isn't it? I wonder what time has in mind for me, or am I even in its mind at all? In other words, am I even relevant to time? Does time even care about me? Does the universe even care about me? Do I have an impact? Well, probably not if I walk the straight and narrow line and think everything is fine. Perhaps I'll get a chance to look ahead and see, as soon as I find myself a crystal ball. Tell me, tell me where I'm going. I don't know where I've been. Tell me, tell me, won't you tell me, and then tell me again. See, that's the thing. There is no crystal ball. We can't see into the future, but we have to look into it. If we have our head down and we're focused on everything we're supposed to be doing here, that we're told we're supposed to be doing, being a good little cog in the machine, we're only as prepared as we can be for the next day. Where if we look into the future, we can be designing our lives. It's an amazing song. I invite you to listen to it. If you've heard it before, maybe the words will take on new meaning today. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I used to like to walk the straight and narrow line I used to think that everything was fine Sometimes I'd sit and gaze for days through sleepless dreams All alone and trapped in time All alone and trapped in time I wonder what tomorrow has in mind for me Or am I even in its mind at all Perhaps I'll get a chance to look ahead and see Soon as I find myself a crystal ball Soon as I find myself a crystal ball Well, tell me, tell me where 
Tell me, tell me, won't you tell me?